0: Good morning.
1: morning. Good
0: morning. I know some of you have had to travel a long distance to get here, uh, even yesterday and today, and I appreciate you coming back. Looking forward to further visiting with you. Thank you. Um, some of you did not sleep very well last night, apparently. You're going over things that were said yesterday. What I want to do this morning is. Um, attempt to bring the two wings of what I spoke about yesterday together. Uh, In the morning I spoke about the role of suffering in the life of the believer and uh, in the afternoon I spoke about the new man. Actually I got to the new man. Um, Today I want to bridge between those two and... um, try to to articulate the intention of the lord when he instructed us to pray that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven it is very clear that god intentionally created the heavens and the earth to be interconnected. And in placing man at the vortex of all of that and placing in him a spirit that connects him to the heavens and a soul that translates the wisdom of the heavens into actionable uh, polity in the earth, we see that both heaven and earth, are in the man, and increasingly all of what is in heaven will come into the being, and increasingly the earth will reflect, will pulsate with the reality of the heavens, in and through the corporate man. Uh, some ways I want to I want to get further into a discussion of the corporate man, because where I left you yesterday was with the thought that when all of heaven has been poured into the sun, so much so that it reflects the glory of God in the earth, then there will be no need for the heavens as they now are, having been emptied of their purpose and because the purposes are fulfilled and reflected in their fulfillment in the new man. And the earth, the fruit of the earth, not in the sense of angrejid, but in the sense of um, what God actually intended when he created the earth, will also be reflected in this new man. Then the heavens and the earth pass away because all that they were meant to produce is now visible in a corporate entity. And this was the thing that God intended from the beginning. That's what he meant when he said that everything in heaven and on earth would be summed up in Christ. Because this, the Christ, the Christ, you see, is the expression of God as Son in the earth for the purpose of reconciling man to God. So that in the Son the radiance of his Father's glory and the exact representation of his Father's being would become the norm. So that when you see him, you'll see the Father. The whole purpose of creation, we began yesterday evening, afternoon to say that the purpose for creation, when God existed before heaven and earth were created, before the heavens and the earth were created, God existed. He created both, which means each one had a point of origin. But in in his intention, in his in his expressed intention, it's not a secret. God is the deep, the same deep who calls to the deep in you. Your spirit with his spirit. And, and it, it's without that there is no testimony that we are the sons of God. Because the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits and what is the testimony that we are the sons of god when you're born again you see we stopped at the the, the 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 most elementary of levels we talked about being born again but we never explored what it was meant to grow up after we were born perpetually we're babes in the current theolo- theological framework but a son a child is born to become a son that is given the solution to any problem in the earth is a son that is given the distinction between the child and the son is the distinction between nepios and weas the, the nepios is the promise weas is the reality A child is not born to remain a child. A child is born to be the evidence of the glory of his father. As he grows through the stages of sonship, just like a natural child grows through the stages of sonship until the father can say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You never say that about a child. There's every manner of occasion on which to be displeased with a small child, (laughs) and the smaller they are, um, the more you have to extend grace to them. But there will come a time when grace is replaced by obedience, when intentionality replaces uh, um, promise, where you live in the reality of the thing. You know how stunning it is for some i mean the majority of preachers with whom i've spoken over the years will 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 simply say i don't believe and th- this is the way they say it, i just don't believe okay so they are the authority i just don't believe that there's any sp- any place in the scriptures that speaks about about us growing up or becoming mature who do you think you are to say that we are meant to be mature Well, that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, I made a command decision before I came to see you that while I did, while I was among you, I would choose to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And about then, the pastors will typically say, You see, you should know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And they said, Well, I suspected that might be your response. So let's read a little bit more. Because what he goes on to say is, but we have a message of wisdom among the mature. And I made the decision to speak of these things that are comparable to milk, because when by now you ought to be teachers of the Word, you're still on milk. You're still on milk. And so I could not treat you as mature because, and he asks the rhetorical question, he says, are you not carnal? Are you not immature? It's in the next chapter, chapter 3. And he equates carnality not with sexual impurity, that's a whole different um, specific subject, but carnality and immaturity are synonymous. When you're immature, you are carnal. Why? Because your preoccupations are with your flesh. What shall I eat? What shall I drink? Or wherewithal shall I be clothed? But, but, the wisdom of the mature, the wisdom of God is for the mature. And that's when God opens the treasure houses of heaven and brings out of the heavens into your reality every day the things that challenge and shape you so that you may be conformed to the standard of the firstborn, the standard of Christ. Then you shall no longer be infants, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful schemings. Instead, speaking the truth in love, you will in all things, in all things, grow up into him who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So maturity is critical to functionality as a believer. Because you're actually engaging the heavens as you, dis- as you put on display through the giftings that God has placed in you before you were in your mother's womb. You, you know, people talk about having a purpose. God installed a purpose in you before you were in your mother's womb. When God thought of you before He issued your being into this world, He thought of expressing Himself in creation in a particular fashion and to that end, He created and endowed you with spirit. Your personality and your giftings, your personality is in your soul, your gifting is in your spirit because they're spiritual gifts. And He creates a personality in the soul to perfectly match the gifting that He's given in the spirit so that he might appear where you are. For when Christ, who is your life, appears... I'm not sure what that was about. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you appear with him in the glory of his appearing. That's what's been absent from the theater of humanity. And imagine all of that, all of these individual expressions being brought together in the form of a man in the earth, in a corporate form in the earth. And this man being spirit and therefore not being limited by by a body in the sense of a human body, but a spiritual body, appearing simultaneously in all the glory of God all over the earth, what shall the world behold? It will behold the promise of heaven. And the things that represent the darkness that we now struggle with Three police officers were shot and killed in Louisiana this morning, apparently in retribution for the murder or for the the killing of uh, uh, in in Baton Rouge. Yes, this morning, following the ones in Dallas and following yesterday's events in Nice and the the destabilization of Turkey through an attempted, uh, all since we've been here. And, and that, that's not talking about what's happening in the Middle East and so on. The time, the hour if I might say it that way, the hour has come for the showing, for the revealing to creation of the hope that is invested in the corporate Christ. Oddly enough, I've noted how uh, the whole religious system has gone uh, dark Nobody's saying anything. All the great names are more concerned as to whether or not Donald Trump is the next president or not. I mean, how vacuous have we become? There's never been a time when this gospel has been more urgent. Been more urgent. Yesterday, in just one brief happening, I hope you don't mind. We saw how God just lifted someone who had struggled for God knows how long with all these things and just in a few sentences. I mean, look at her this morning. She's a new person. I mean, totally, totally. I mean, not that you were inappropriate to justice but you came intentionally this morning, purposefully. And it's the beginning of a transformation that's called you back to life. And, amen. <laughs> amen. And has renewed you. Just the word of the Lord as, an, as a thing we were doing as we went along. Imagine this whole kingdom being uh, revealed on the earth. It will heal the earth. This is what God intended. This is what God intended. So this morning what I would like to do is try and bring the two wings of what I was saying uh, yesterday together. Suffering on the one hand and the eternal in time on the other. So let me pick up a thread where we were when we said in 2 Corinthians uh, about... Uh, Paul saying that um, he was tested above measure uh, beyond measure and above strength that's where I want to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 And he was talking about how we are able to comfort one another with the comfort we receive from the Lord when we went through our trials. Verse 8, that's where I want to pick up this morning. Verse 8, 2 Corinthians Corinthians 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our troubles which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. He said, we were tested beyond measure and above strength so that we despaired even for life. Remember, remember that we were saying that's when there's no measure, there is no prior experience that forms a basis of evaluation of the degree to which we were brought to suffering. Okay. We were tested, we suffered beyond measure. No prior measure was applicable to describe the quantum of our suffering as we came into Asia. And this is a mature believer, the standard bearer of Christ in the earth at the time saying that. Clearly not anything connected with a default on his part. And we said yesterday, sometimes you will suffer for the sake of others, that you might bring comfort to others because... They will become part of your life in the future and God is laying up in you right now experiences that are of the kind and nature that will allow you to lead others through the barren landscape. But sometimes this above measure has to do with things yet to be unfolded in your life. In your life. And it's in the matter of extending your capacity to carry grace, to carry the presence of God. Now, by the way, I know of these things personally, and and I had some some little bit of autobiographical information um, that give you a hint that I know what I'm talking about. Right? And I was not pleased at God's attention and wish he would sh- shift his focus onto somebody else. But He clearly had me in mind because he knew where I was going. God knows the end of every life from the beginning. He knows all the aspects of our journey. And because he's more committed to us than we sometimes are to our own growth and development, he will act seemingly arbitrarily and sometimes we might think capriciously to accomplish things for which we have no ability to show appreciation at the time that he's installing those things in us. Later on, however, when we have grown a little bit more, we have the capacity to appreciate what he was doing and then to show appreciation. And and, and it doesn't bother God that we, we don't have a frame of reference at the time that he's dealing with us. Um, because He is committed to us as a father, not as our peer. And as a father, He will lead whether or not you are appreciative of His initiatives in your life. I remember I used to tell uh, Nick, my other son, who preferred that I be his friend at certain times and not his father. Uh, and he would tell me how all of his cronies as I referred to them, how all of his cronies friends uh, fathers uh, were their friends, and I would say to him, "Well, son, if I can be a friend to you that's I'm not opposed to it, uh, but I don't intend to swim in the same fetid pools of shared ignorance as you and your friends.
1: <laughs>
0: I intend to be your father." <laughs> English language is a wonderful thing. (laughs) I explained to him that it was greater to be his father than to be his friend. And uh, if I had a choice in the matter, I'd always default to being his father, to the exclusion, if it it were necessary, uh, of being perceived as his friend, although being his father is his friend. God is like that with us. And sometimes we seek the company of one another like children in a graveyard speaking loudly to comfort themselves at the sound of their own voices. But at the end of the day, we still don't know what God is doing. So we have to wait. We have to wait. Sometimes we cannot find comfort in the voice of our friends because what God is doing is above the thresholds of our common experiences. Here was an example and uh, he was saying uh, we were tested beyond measure because, you see, you do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You do wrestle against mighty demonic princes who have established, in some cases, complete hegemony over entire areas of life and over geographies as well. Like the Prince of Persia, who who was thrown down, by the way, in a moment in time. So what God prepares us for in the beyond measure uh, aspects of our testing is not always visible and not always understandable. At the time that it's happening, so no trial at the time is pleasant, but painful. I have it on good authority. I'm actually quoting the script. I know many of you are so familiar with the scriptures that you recognize when I'm when I'm actually just quoting the scripture right along with, uh, as if it's a normal saying. No, tri- no trial at the time is pleasant, but painful. But when it is done, and no trials last permanently, it will always be done. When it is done, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. See, God God may appear arbitrary. And certainly from our viewpoint, because He does not solicit our cooperation in the process. He is arbitrary, but He's not capricious. He's subtle, but He's not malicious. His ways are not always known at the time, but they're always for our good. For we know that in every circumstance... God works for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We know that. So what is the intent of this quantum of suffering? What does God hope to produce in us when He takes away all of the safety measures and we feel like we're in free fall continuously? What is God after? He hopes one thing to be the result. And here, this is what he said. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. The intent of God in taking us over the cliff is not that we should find a way to to hold on to the roots and pull ourselves up. The intent is that we should trust God that He's able to raise us up even from the dead. Why? Because anything short of that makes you subject to the control of the thing you fear and leaves the soul in control what god is doing through your sufferings is bringing back the alignment in you the proper alignment of your soul and your spirit he's because with your spirit you know you know you're born again in your spirit you know that you're in him Because it's a spiritual body, it's not a soulish one. You know you are in him, in your spirit. Your spirit always knows. But the the noise in your soul keeps insisting on a different reality. And that noise is about surviving in your present state. Not fully evolving into what you actually were saved for. To become a part of the eternal, ever-living, body of Christ a spirit man the quantum of suffering that is required to realign you to God is this quantum of suffering beyond measure and above strength so there's nothing in the bag because the bag is the is the uh, repository of your resources Your soul, some of you may have remembered hearing me talk about how I always knew growing up, because of my early encounters with God, I always knew that I had a destiny that required me to trust God with everything. I always knew that. I knew that from the time I was a boy. It's not something I sat around and thought about, but I knew that at some point in my life, I would have to experience what it meant to trust God without reserves, but not being um, not being one without imagination. I thought to create my own reserves, but have them look like they were spontaneous occurrences. You know, and I, I've used the expression that I wanted to. I knew I had to live by faith, but I hoped to have a fully funded walk of faith
1: <laughs>
0: by my residuals, <clears throat> by creating things that were just below the surface, sort of like appearing to walk on water, but there were pylons just below the surface. <laughs> and I knew where they were, but I've, I could produce this illusion that I was walking across the water. I know I'm unique in that regard, <laughs> because I have a more active imagination of course than the rest of you <laughs> not at all we are common in that regard and you have perhaps even more active an imagination than I as to how you could you know, maybe sell futures in a record company that's just a passing comment that's not a reference to any, anybody's activities but it was certainly the sort of thing I would have thought about.
1: It's a bad bet. Trust me. <laughs> Say again? It's a bad bet, trust me. <laughs> bad <laughs> bad.
0: <laughs> but it's the sort of thing I would, have, I would have thought about back then. But God means to bring you to the place where you have no reserve. So what was Paul's answer to all of that? We read it in, uh, in the 12th chapter. Of the same Second Corinthians, just to refresh your memory, it was in red in some of your um, in some of your versions, uh, verse eight and verses eight and nine of Second Corinthians twelve. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, this thorn in His flesh. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength... Okay, Whose strength? And I don't mean to treat you like children. I want you to take ownership of what you're seeing. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of God may rest upon me. So there are, two, there are two things at work here. One is the death of your strength and the other is the arising of His strength in you. Now yesterday when we talked about the heavens, We talked about the fact that the vastness of God that he elected to put on display to become visible in the earth was why he created the heavens. He created the heavens to install the vastness of his rule in heaven and told us to pray that that would come increasingly out of heaven into our domain. When he talks then about the power of God, this is what he's having reference to. How the power of God might come out of the domain of heaven and vest in the earth with us. Now that is a substantially larger quantum of power than anything we could configure on the earth in our behalf. But you cannot simultaneously... Engage the power of the heavens, the power of the kingdom which is described as all authority in heaven and on earth. You cannot engage that simultaneously with keeping alive your own power because one operates in the spirit, the other operates in the soul. One operates by faith, the other operates by fear. The power of the soul is rooted in the motivation of fear. The power of the heavens operates in the spirit and functions in accord with love, with the emotion of love. So when these trials then, above measure, means no prior reference, This is new, this is new in a very dramatic way, okay? It's not like anything you've touched before, this is new. And beyond strength, you cannot come up with a solution between yourselves and all of your acquaintances that will get you out of this one. Then the thing to be learned is the thing for you to embrace is first the very concept that when you are weak, that's the prerequisite that makes room for the entering in of his strength and the functioning of it. What then is the is the result as far as you are concerned? What should be the case? What should happen uh, when that when that when your strength has been displaced, and you're now entering into and becoming familiar with uh, the 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 working of His power, what should be the result where you are concerned? And I think Justine just said rest, and she's right. No, I heard I heard you. You already know this. It's in you. It's in you. The funny thing is, I'm using language, concepts to tell you things that you have known. I don't mean to patronize you, but if you're serious about walking with God, these things will have already appeared on your radar. What I'm doing is providing you with the overarch so that you can see the cogent and, and systemic flow of all of these things. This should always have been the gospel that you should have heard. And part of the thing is, when you hear it now, and it so resonates in the very chambers of your inner being, sometimes you have to push back the anger that arises in you because of having felt cheated and denied the information that you've needed the absence of which has caused you as much pain as the suffering that you now experience to bring you to it. But you're right on track. And it does not matter what your experiences have been and it does not matter what your age is because your spirit is ageless. The body has certain uh, aspects of age to it but your spirit is ageless. And this is the bread from heaven that a man may eat and live according to Jesus himself. This is the food that we should have always been fed. And as the woman at the well said, ev- uh, as as uh, someone said, not the woman at the well, evermore give us this bread. But actually, that, that was the crowd in John 6, when they thought he was just uh, telling them About having more natural bread, and they were enthusiastic about the prospects of not having to work again because he was going to give them lots and lots of bread. It brings us into rest. And I want to read some things from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, about the rest of God. Because this is what it's, it's supposed to result in you coming to a place of rest. All right? And then from there, I want to show you some marvelous things that I've been trying to talk about for a long time. I've been trying to talk about the vision of Ezekiel for a long time, and I just would hit it a glancing blow, and it would go off to one side. But I think this morning is the time to talk about the vision of Ezekiel and the corporate man, because it is the new man. All right, now... uh, Let's look at Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 3 and we we will pick up with the fact that God rested on the seventh day. Hebrews chapter 3, it'll be a, a relatively long reading. You know what's funny is we're not used to in our experiences, we're really not used to going to hear messages where people read a lot from the scriptures. You know, sound bites here and there, usually as promotional statements to some ideal that they want. When you actually get back and read the scriptures again, you discover the treasures of heaven that have been locked up to you. Parenthetically, I, I had this good friend named Thomo Naidu and when i first heard him and when he and i met about 11 years ago in washington dc we were both invited to uh, to speak at a conference there and he made a uh, he made a he's, he has a way of expressing things that's different from from most people i suppose you could say the same thing for different ones of us but uh, he made the statement he said um, we're supposed to plunder the heavens. To plunder the heavens. And my thought was I think this is a mixed metaphor because plunder is usually associated with theft and piracy. And uh, to plunder the heavens. And I had the strange thought is he from Nigeria? <laughs> because I fully expect one of these days to find the pearly gates in somebody's backyard in Lagos.
1: <laughs> I
0: said that at, uh, uh, I was in Joburg at... Uh, one of Thamo's schools, and I said that. And uh, one fellow came up to me afterward. He said, "I'm from Nigeria." <laughs> anyway, no, no offense to anyone. Certainly, no offense to any person born in Africa. But I've come to see, and I said to him, "I said, Thamo, I've come to see that you're right. God has." God has given us access to the treasures of heaven and it is our prerogative to plunder the heavens until they're completely empty of every treasure and then the heavens will pass away. And all that treasure will be accumulated in the house of God because the house of God is in heaven and on earth. So... We'll have a relatively long reading, um, and I'll pause at certain times to comment, but it's about rest, it's about rest. So what happens when your strength has been exhausted? Therefore, holy brethren, this is verse 1, Hebrews 3, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. In other words, Christ is worthy to carry greater glory than Moses inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. See, Moses was a steward in the house of God, but but Christ is the builder of the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all this is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested and tried me and saw my works forty years, Uh, What he's saying here is there was a time when God led Israel through the wilderness. Moses was watching over that house as a servant because Moses was in charge of Israel in the time of the wilderness. And he said "These, these ones were in rebellion. Why? Because in the day of trial in the wilderness, they were being tried in the wilderness. What is the point? Like we are being tried now. When your fathers, he's speaking to the Hebrews, because it's a book of Hebrews, when your fathers tested and tried me and saw my works forty years, every day, let me just comment on what they saw for 40 years. Every morning they woke up, there was bread on the ground for them. Every night, the presence of God warmed the atmosphere and prevented them from suffering hypothermia in the freezing cold of the desert. And during the day, The presence of God hovered over them as a cooling cloud and mist. He air-conditioned the desert for them and brought out heaters for them at night so that it was hospitable. He led them by streams of water and sometimes caused water to come from a rock. Their clothes never wore out. They were never sick. They lived in the environment of His presence for 40 years. Now you would think at some point they would say, I get it. I can trust you. This is a divine economy in which I have been living for a generation. So maybe there is such a thing as a divine economy available to me on a daily basis. He said, and saw my works. 40 years therefore this is one of the rare speakings of god in the old test in in the scriptures therefore i was angry with that generation i was angry with a generation that would not trust me after seeing and living in my economy 24 hours a day seven days a week for an entire generation. So I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known My ways. In other words, they're constantly double-minded. It never sets up in them that I am reliable as I have been. Not one day, not one moment did God falter in His faithfulness to them. So much so that they grew contemptuous of His ways because of the sheer familiarity with His goodness. And God came to the conclusion, I cannot do anything with this generation. What an astonishing statement. I cannot do anything with this generation. It doesn't matter what I do. It makes no difference to them. And said, "This this is God's conclusion about the condition of the hearts of that people that he rescued from Egypt they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways now before we go on what do you suppose what do you suppose created that degree of callousness in them to the ever- observable, tangible presence of God every day. And it wasn't just the manna. That would have been plenty. But it was these other things we talked about. You know, the the desert was warmed at night with a pillar of fire. Because as you know, uh, silica uh, reflects heat and does not absorb it. So in the nighttime, the air is thin and the ground is Freezing cold. If you've ever been in the desert, you will know that that's true. You need a fire in the desert to keep warm at night. But but by the same token, in the daytime, again, the, the, the silica reflects the heat. So you have heat coming down and heat rising. And it will reach searing temperatures of 130 degrees. So you don't move around in the desert unless there's a pillar of cloud. And, and not a tree in sight, unless there is a pillar of cloud that that literally air conditions your environment. These things you have known, but I wanted to draw them out. And they lived that way for 40 years, and still would not trust God. In their hearts, in their, in, in their, in their daily goings about, They went out every morning eager to find manna and they'd consume it. And at night they would lie down in the warmth of His presence and in the daytime they would move around under the the favorable conditions created by His presence. But it was as if they had split personalities. They came to depend on that Water would come out of the rock if necessary. And they even frustrated Moses, who was the meekest man who ever lived. What would account for people seeing the goodness of God so continuously and in their hearts never buying into it? That's what he's saying. On the surface it was all there. There was no rational explanation. They themselves would call the food, What is it? That's the meaning of the word manna. Manna means, What is it? We've never seen anything like this. When they complained that they needed some variation, uh, God gave them quail, because um, the the biggest anticipated feast for them when they were slaves in Egypt were at certain times of the year when the quail would run through the fields and eat the fallen grain and they would go out and catch them gleefully. It was the one relief from the oppression of their slavery in Egypt and they'd cook with onions and garlics and leeks. That's when they said, we want to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. So they complained, they wanted the taste in the presence of heavenly supply They wanted the taste that was most delightful to them about their slavery. So in some ways, they wanted to mix slavery in with heavenly food, the bread of slavery in with heavenly food. What would make a people so impervious to the daily manifestations of God's goodness? The answer is that they were slaves. They had so long served another master. They had so long served another master that when God gave them freedom and liberty, they enjoyed it as from His hand, but they never entered into it with their hearts. although God slew the Egyptians to set them free. The reason God brought Egypt out to the Red Sea to slaughter the armed forces of Egypt was to permanently remove the threat to them of being taken back into slavery. Moses said it when he said, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord your God. Nobody was going to heaven that day. He was going to save them from the type of Satan. For Egypt, like Babylon, have come to be representative types of how we have been enslaved in something we've come to know as the cosmos, the world. So, and then Moses said, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. After all of that, they could enter into the daily administrations of the presence of God on their behalf, but then their hearts never bought in. And so God concluded after a generation of that, I cannot do anything with this people. Now, so I swore in my wrath, this is one of those rare things you will find of God. He said, They have always they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. It is not enough to know about God. This is the time when we must come to know his ways. If you don't if you choose not to know the ways of God, if you choose not to infer the presence of God and His goodness from His sustaining activities in your life, then it's because you don't know His ways. Now God doesn't cut anybody off instantaneously because love is patient, it is kind, and it is long-suffering. You know what long-suffering means? You suffer for a very long time. (laughs) So God is long-suffering, suffers with people for a long time, 40 years, an entire generation. And then he said, I swore in my wrath, God finally got angry. Don't let anyone tell you that God never gets angry. Don't let anyone tell you that the love of God is endless. No, the love of God is patient, but it is not tolerant. We have bought mixtures today. God is never tolerant in the sense that He considers everything equally valuable. Well, God knows what is the right standard, but He's though He is intolerant, He's patient. He's patient. He's patient, with our wrongdoings but he never confuses our wrongdoing with anything that is right and you should not either. The world has convinced us that tolerance is a good thing. No, patience is a good thing. But tolerance, unless it is right intrinsically, you must never accommodate to it as if it is. Patience, however, is how we respond to people with whom we disagree. Love is patient. It is not tolerant, it is patient. What we commonly see is impatience in the activities of those who oppose or who disagree with others. Well, in that case, they do not represent God because God is patient with people with whom He disagrees. But His patience is not endless. He's patient until until you know exactly what is right and choose not to enter in. Then He attributes to you your choice. God will continue... To be patient, God will continue. To be long-suffering, God will continue to be kind until you say, I will not enter your rest. Then He will respond to you, or He will respond to persons in His wrath and He will swear that He will never give you that opportunity again. Here it is. I swore on oath in my anger. They shall not enter my rest. Why? Because after 40 years, they're not going to. And it's time for you to move on to the next generation. I see so many in my generation for whom this is true, and you watch now, and even great ministries or ministries that were dominant, as the one saying what the Bible, what the what what scriptures say, are just falling down. The world is not comprised of ministries. The view of God is not about how God does things through ministries. People, uh, Professional ministers think that it is. It's not. It's about how God deals with people. It's how God deals with people. And He's just as interested in you, in what you are doing, in what He has called you to be, in terms of how you are configured to represent Him, than anything that is called ministry the whole notion of ministry is by and large an artificial construct because God put you in the earth with the intention of living specifically through you and to show His glory through you. But, but it's common when you have a generation that has gone astray that God will, there will come a time when God will bring an arrest to it and change the whole game. And that's when God said, of that generation, they will never enter my rest. Now what happened to them when God said that? Every last one of them except Joshua and Caleb died in the wilderness. Every one of them. From the age of 13 up, upward, every one of that generation died in the wilderness because God could not work with the mentality of those who had two masters. Can I ask a question? Yes, you may.
1: Um, I guess I'm looking at your explanation of Egypt and Babylon as a cosmos and they being slaves. And of course I'm thinking practically sure. you know as a sure that we have been slaves to the cosmos yes and ultimately what God is trying to do is to get us as slaves out because then we can understand better. but the question here is, yes. <laughs> the question here is which is an obvious struggle that we have is that when you say I literally wrote it down because I was shocked their hearts
0: never bought in yes and so I think that's something I understand but don't
1: understand what does it mean for your heart not to buy in. Because yes, you can see the tangible expression of who God is, but your heart
0: is not buying in. What does that mean? Remember you have a heart in the soul, you have a heart in the spirit. The heart of your spirit never saw and responded to the love of God. You were always fearful that one day you'll come outside and there'll be no man on the ground. Exactly. It's
1: literally, so in a simple way, it's where fear rules and you refuse to blindly walk in the
0: spirit Absolutely. And in that regard, you always remain an orphan and you never accept that you're a son. See, in the last days, God will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. But what is the other side of that? He'll turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers, or, He said, I will destroy the land with a curse. You see, God always initiates because that's the nature of a father. And He'll keep on initiating His love toward you in all the ways that you can see it for a consistent period of time so that there's no doubt of his goodness. The truth is, God has been with you all along. However, the relationship was not established. But once you become aware of this truth, and you you observe, I mean, right now you are seeing how God is bearing you up in the manner in which He bore Israel up in the wilderness. You're seeing that. He's teaching you a different economy, how to buy without money and without price, how to serve without deriving a benefit from what you serve, because that's the nature of God. Now some of that, serving without deriving a benefit from what you do, some of that has to do with preparing you to be fathers, because fathers do not exploit their children. And the nature of God as a father is that he's a giver, and God will supply you to give. The riches that you have now are the abilities that God has given you, and the, and the ways those have been refined in struggles and trials. And 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 people will appear to exploit you, yeah. and but you're not foolish. God is drawing it out of you to break down in you the temptation to reserve everything until a fee has been given. Because you can't be a father. You cannot be a father unless you're willing to give with no thought of return. Why? Because that's what secures a son. That's what assures the son that from his father there will always be an inheritance. It's the diff- There are two economies. There's the economy of the sweat of your brow and there's the economy of an inheritance. The sweat of your brow is what you've earned. The inheritance is His grace that appears to you in its season. But most people have no anticipation of an inheritance from their natural parents, so it's very difficult to believe that God who sees you as a son also sees you as an heir. That's from from Galatians chapter 4 verse 1. Because you are sons of God, you are also the heirs of God. To be an heir is conditioned upon the relationship of sonship because an heir is a recipient of the estate of a father, ergo, you must be a son. So the heart of a son has to turn back to the father. Otherwise, from from his hands you will take whatever he gives you. I I don't know, some of you saw the movie with Eddie Murphy called Trading Places, perhaps. That's where he he used the street hustler, which he plays without peer. Eddie Murphy is the consummate player of the street hustler. And um, uh, he was the heir of uh, of a vast fortune and Mortimer and the other character brought him into, into this elaborate house that was his, his house. It was part of his estate and they were saying to him, they were reading the will and telling him how he has had the good fortune of being the heir of the deceased. And in this office, you know, there were silver ashtrays and all sorts of paraphernalia just about With um, that was worthwhile, that, that had some, some street value. And they're telling him, yeah, all this stuff is yours. And he's saying, yeah, it's mine. And he's stuffing it in his jacket and in his pockets. He's stealing from himself. Because in his mind, there is no concept of being an heir of anybody. Lived on the street for so long, Hustled so long that in his mind, the only thing, the only economy that you could ever access is the one that you can hustle and get. And the irony is, he was stealing from himself. There are many people who view God that way. They'll see the the, the Israelites saw God that way. They were His people. He was leading them out, giving them portions of their inheritance taking them to a land that was their landed inheritance with houses that they had not built, vineyards they hadn't planted and all of that, subjects of a promise. He's bringing them to that, showing His goodness on the way up, but in their hearts they never accepted that they were His people. And and to them, He said, you see how critical this thing is, To them he said, I swore on oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. In other words, I can't do anything with this generation. And I'm telling you, I've seen so many in my generation who will hear these things, they will tell me they're true, and they simply cannot buy in. I cannot begin to tell you how many pastors I've talked to in 40 years who have said to me all of what you're saying is this is how they actually frame it they'll say I can't find anything wrong with what you're saying which is to say what their first impression is they're looking for what's wrong with what because they can pick out the threat they can pick out the threat but they'll say I can't find anything wrong with what you're saying but how am I going to actually feed my family? And I, sa- I would say, you haven't heard a thing I've said. Right. In fact, the same thing happened with Jesus. Exactly the same thing happened with Jesus. When he fed the 5,000, he collected. He had them collect 12 baskets. Some of you may have heard that, that message. And it told him, Jesus, that that generation had eaten the bread that he fed them, but the twelve baskets were representative of the bread of his presence, the other bread in the wilderness. Not just manna, but there was the bread of his presence, and there were twelve loaves. They were called the bread of his presence, they were put on the table of show because it was showbread to show His presence. And when they when the collected back up, Jesus instructed them to collect the, the, the fragments, when they collected 12 baskets full of fragments, Jesus understood that although they had eaten the, from the loaves and fish, they had not eaten one morsel. They had not believed a single thing that He had said to them when he spoke as the bread of life come down from heaven. And he told them that the next day. That generation also died in Roman captivity. So this thing is very... and it repeats itself. These are the secrets of the scriptures. These are the ways of heaven that are meant for you. These things were meant for you. These aren't just things God created for himself so he could he could confuse you. He meant to disclose the hidden things of heaven to you on the earth. So 40 years and he said so now the writer says Beware brethren speaking to the Hebrews lest there be any of you who have an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's the next verse, verse 12. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let me comment just briefly on the word today. Today is not a chronological day. You stop at 12? Okay. Today is not, in Scripture, today is not a chronological day. A day in, in... the passage of time marked out by a calendar. It's a unique thing. Let me illustrate it this way. We talked yesterday about when you are at 35,000 feet. You are already in a new day because from your elevation you can see the horizon. Right? When God reveals a matter to you, you're seeing from the viewpoint of heaven, you're observing the earth from the viewpoint of heaven, so your elevation is from the throne of God. Therefore your horizon is now in a reality in which that pinpoint heaven and earth meet. Where heaven and earth meet, where the revelation of God coincides with you in a moment in time, that is called today. When God reveals a matter to you, when God reveals a matter to you from heaven and it connects with where you are in the earth, at that moment in time, that is the today of God. So what is it saying? What am I saying? I'm saying there comes a time when after God has dealt faithfully with you, shown you His goodness, you've experienced the support and the care of God, then He'll reveal to you what that is, how you ought to view it. In that moment, you could elect to buy in, if I can say it that way, or to reject it. If you buy in in that day, then you have not hardened your heart. If when you see it, however, you turn away, then you have hardened your heart. So what is the admonition? Today, if you will hear His voice. It's the day when heaven speaks into your present. It's the moment in time when you've heard God clearly. That's the moment when you live up to the measure of what you've already attained. And when and because you do, God will give you more. That's the moment when you enter the reality of His supply his economy, based on his person in in the framework of your human existence. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. That results in you entering his rest. Now, why is it called... So he says... While it is today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, for you have for having heard for having heard for who having heard rebelled. Indeed, was it not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they will never enter his rest, but those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. Now, therefore, but, but why do we why do we call it God's rest? Why do we call it God's rest, entering God's rest? Why why should we call it God's rest? Well, the Scriptures say, when God created the heavens and the earth, on the seventh day, He rested from all the works He had done. Since that time, God has not worked anymore. Why? Because he knows the end from the beginning. And the last piece that was required for the establishment of the purposes of showing himself was to create the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth against the background of his intention to be disclosed. Let there be light. I will be known as myself. So when we talked about what he put in the heavens yesterday, we said God put circles in the heavens to signify covenants. We know that from the fact that when he brought one of those circles out of heaven into the earth, it was to signify a covenant. That same circle is in heaven. The rainbow was the particular circle that He brought out of the heavens to signify that He establishes covenants that that are the reflections of His intentions before He created anything that we now know. And He establishes around His throne which means the purpose for which his entire authority exists is to serve the covenants that he has established and sworn to. Now, much is made of... the Here I'm beginning to blend the two, sort of like shuffling the deck. Um, much is made of... Uh, the waters that are above the firmament from the waters that are below the firmament. We know a lot about the creation of the world, but we know almost nothing of the creation of the heavens. And yet it says God created the heavens and the earth in the same time of creating. Essentially what we know from that narrative We know a lot from the rest of the scriptures, but from that narrative, essentially what we know are two things. One is that God established a firmament to separate the waters from the waters. says that. And that God established lights in the firmament for particular purposes, including the purpose of signs. All right? Now... The firmament he calls heaven, and heaven separates waters from waters. Now again, because of our present worldview, we assume that we're looking at the heavens and the earth as they presently are in the time before creation, which is absurd because they're being created, they do not exist. But God exists, so the conversation of of God about the heavens is with Himself. He's speaking, let us make man, let us do this and let us do that. So this, this conversation does not take place with God being either in heaven or on earth because that's what He's creating. The conversation is taking place within the person of God. Now fascinating thing is this why would god if he's one why would god say let us if god is one Hear, O israel the lord your god is one lord and the scriptures repeat that in the new testament by saying uh, endeavor to keep the unity of the of the spirit in the bond of peace ephesians 4 one one lord one faith one baptism all right, so if, if God is one, why would He say us, let us make man? Well, you know, some sort of cheesy explanation, like He's using the royal we. No, nah, nonsense. God is speaking about something particular. God is corporate because He contains everything. God is corporate, He's a corporate being and it's the only thing that you may simultaneously refer to as singular and plural. For example, if Apple Corporation is making a statement announcing new products and its spokesman Tim Cook says, "Uh, we at Apple uh, are announcing today a new slate of products. Would, he be, would it be inappropriate for him to say, "We at Apple"? No, because what is Apple? Everything that Apple has may be expressed corporately. But if Wired Magazine is writing an article, is it is it appropriate for the author of that article commenting on that announcement to say, "Apple has announced"? a new slate of products using the singular reference of course because when you refer to the thing in its entirety then you may refer to it singularly when you refer to it in its activities across the spectrum of what it can be then you may ref- you only can refer to it corporately as plural So that's what God was doing. He was having a conversation in himself about what he's about to do, and in that regard, it is us. It is us. But when the reporter, in this case Moses, is writing about it, then it is only appropriate for him to say, so God created in the singular sense of of reference to God. So we have not understood many things about God but now the veil is being lifted and there's much that we can and will and do understand about God. So God established a partition of waters from waters and the partition, since he's making heaven and the heavens and the earth, he calls the partition heaven and separates waters in heaven from waters below the firmament and on the earth. Now, these things connect to each other, but since heaven is a spiritual realm and the earth is a natural realm, water in the earth is a type and shadow of water in the heavens. Now, what do I mean by that? whatever water in the earth does which is observable to us water in the and, and and that will affect our natural forms water in the heavens will do in a similar fashion one to one correlation but it will affect our spirits so there's a water that is designed to affect our spirits and the need of our spirits, just like water exists on the earth and will affect the needs of our bodies. And the two waters clash at a well in Sychar. There's a woman at the well. And Jesus set up the exchange by saying, Woman, give me some water. And she says, you're a Jew asking me, a Samaritan, for water. And he said, you know, woman, if you knew who was asking you for water, you would ask him for the water that springs up into eternal life, that you will never be thirsty again. And she continuing on a linear plane says, well, evermore give me that water because I don't want to have to come out to the well to haul water back to the village. Total misfire. (laughs) But was He the water from heaven? Sure. What is that water from heaven? A man ought to wash his wife with the water from heaven. Cleansing her, making her holy. How does he accomplish that? What is the water from heaven by which a man may wash his wife? From Ephesians chapter 5. Washing her by water through the Word. So when the water comes out of heaven into the earth, it comes as Word. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when he says at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee, where there's six water pots, which are used for ceremonial purposes, and the six water, six being the number of man, when you put the water of life into human beings, it washes and renews their understanding both of who they are and what heaven is. When you draw out the water at the wedding feast, it restores the joy to the feast. Because water that comes out from a pot that that has been filled with the Word resets the mind. So you may bring forth the joy of the Lord in the Spirit of God. That's what he's telling us. <laughs> I'm just I'm cutting across fields here in order, to, in, in order to get to get some quick quick things. So the word above the firmament the water above the firmament exists as word. The water below the firmament exists as water. The water below the firmament produces crops, which in turn produces bread. So, when the water from heaven comes into the world, into the world, it produces bread from heaven, that a man may eat and live. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by because that word is bread. I am the bread of life, come down from heaven. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and have perished, but I have come that you might have life, and that more abundantly. God intentionally created the heavens and the earth to be in consort with one another, and he put both heaven and earth in us when he put spirit in flesh. Now he separated the heavens from the earth by a barrier that makes it impossible with the natural eyes to look into heaven. But whenever great events are passing from heaven into the earth, how do you know that that is happening? He has set lights in the firmament of the heavens to indicate when things are passing from the heavens into the earth. So on a particular occasion, a star called the Desire of the Ages appeared in the constellation Virgo and wise men from the upper reaches of Iraq saw it and journeyed to Bethlehem to find the son who was born of a virgin. The Desire of the Ages has come. because the lights are set in the firmament for signs. You can't look into heaven with the natural eyes, but you can see what's coming from heaven through the lights in the firmament of heaven. Now today you have a more excellent uh, and certain uh, uh, signpost. You have the, the Holy Spirit himself, who testifies with your spirit, and reveals the kingdom of heaven in all of its incremental descending into the realm of man. And by the Spirit you have bread from heaven, because he reveals the word to you. What did Israel eat for 40 years? Bread from heaven. As the Spirit of God reveals these things to you, and you have the certainty of the migration of heaven into your space and time, what is required of you? That you enter His rest. Because these things have all been done and now they are in the sequences of God migrating from where they are in heaven into your space. And it is like bread coming on the ground every day. And when you see it, your response is to believe. To believe. For they who believe enter His rest. Look, let's go back to Hebrews now. There's no easy way to just lay this out without going back and looking at what what is the antecedent and what is the current iteration? Therefore, therefore, the, uh, the end of that, see, so we see that they could not enter his rest because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest although the works were finished from the foundations of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day, in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in another place, they shall not enter my rest. Let me tell you a little bit about the word seven. The word seven is the word uh, Shabbat or Sheba. In fact, Sheba's name is the sound in Hebrew of the word seven, Shabbat. And it means complete, finished, as in nothing left undone. And it's actually the root word. For the word Sabbath. Sabbath. Sabbath means rest because there's nothing that remains to be done. When you've done everything that needs to be done, what do you do? For many of us, you do some more, (laughs) you invent something else to do. But it's a matter that speaks for itself. When everything that is part of what is required, has been done, then there's nothing else to do. So you rest. You rest not because you find your value in your work. You rest because the plan is now fully vested. And you may rest. When God finished, He intentionally finished after six days. So on the seventh day, everything was judged to be complete and very good. Everything necessary for your life on this earth, everything necessary for the practice of godliness has been fully established. It's been fully established. That rest exists for the people of God. The opportunity for the sons of God to enter into what God has already established remains. Since it was established on the seventh day, it has remained since that time. And God is always inviting those who represent him in the earth, those who are regarded as his children in the earth, God has continuously invited them to come and to rest in the reality of what he has done. Rest doesn't mean you sleep every day, all day long, and you only get up when you're hungry. Rest means that God has foreordained the courses of your life. What rest means is that your Father has determined the purpose for your being in this world. And that purpose may be pursued fully from a state of complete trust in Him. That is God's rest. Into which you are invited as his son to come and be. The conflict in us, and the reason we have to labor to enter his rest, is the conflict between our souls and our spirits. The work of God is one thing alone it's to believe. I read that somewhere. (laughs) For the work of God is to believe on the one who has been sent. I found a very interesting definition of unbelief. Verse 6 says, Therefore, since it remains that some must enter it, and those who to whom it was first preached, did not enter. In other, just what I told you. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it. The rest of God has remained. It simply is the state of being in which God is and to which when we are in Christ we are invited to be. It remains. Since therefore it remains that some uh, must enter it, And by contrast, those to whom it was first preached did not enter it, the point being, it still remains, so some should enter it. Uh, First preached did not enter it because of disobedience. Disobedience is the failure to enter God's rest. Disobedience is the failure to enter God's rest. There it is. They did not enter because of disobedience. Again he designates a certain day, saying in David, today. Again, keeping in mind, what is today? Today is when the revelation of heaven Enters the domain of your existence. That's the today of God. For some, it, 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 it does not mean that it's the same day for everyone. That is why it is the day when it comes to you. It came to David. First it came to, to Joshua, and then it came to David. Today, after such a long time, it is being said, it has been said, Today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your heart." In other words, don't be governed by your soul and the unbelief that is in your soul. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Note, the operative term is ceasing from your strife. There's an economy of the sweat of your brow and God is bringing a generation into an economy of rest which is to trust Him. And we know that this is being spoken in the earth now because God has raised up a generation that is eager for all the things of God. And the greatest of your inheritances is to come into God's rest. Come into God's rest doesn't mean, I say it again, It doesn't mean there is nothing to do. It's the distinction between doing what you want to do and doing what he created you so that he can do through you. And belief is that you actually accept that as a son of God, there remains now no barrier to God functioning as God meant to function in the earth. And with that in mind, He issued you an endowment of His Spirit, clothed it in flesh in your mother's womb and that's what you are here upon the earth now to give place to, the presence of God in you in the form of His Spirit, in fellowship with your spirit, to will and to do what is His pleasure. Now do you think you have a better idea of how to please God by what you may offer to God? Or do you think that there is a better way for you to live in this earth, a more glorious way than that? This is the belief into which He invites you to come. One of the reasons you have gone through all the trials you have gone through and that you will go through more, one of the reasons is that you might see the goodness of God in your day. And as you become the leaders of a generation, this is why God is choosing you to become the leaders of a generation. You're not yet the leaders of of that generation because that's the emerging generation. You are now in your training to lead the generations. It's not one of these days you will lead or one of these days you will have relevance. No, right now God is treating you as sons and positioning you to be the dominant forces in a generation by restoring to a generation the vision of who God is through your persons. It's already It ought already be obvious to you that your giftings are superlative. That ought to be obvious to you. What do you think... When God is the energy, when God is the life that is encased in your gifts, what do you think will happen to you in a generation that you are about to show a light to? You will be the choice of the whole earth. And people will say, Come, let us go up to the city on the hill. To learn of the ways of God from his sons, from the house of God. Men will say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that they can teach us their ways. I'm not blowing smoke in your direction, I'm telling you what the truth is. This was supposed to be what it was always meant to be from the beginning. This is what God created. This is why he created the heavens and the earth. So the time will come when the nations of the earth will come to walk by your light because everything else is darkness. That is why you must come into his rest because you don't have anything better to offer the earth. In fact, everything else is the same hope that is failing in the earth. When you come into his rest, you will not be disappointed. Okay, we're going to stop here. I'm going to stop here because I don't want to start the portion that has to do with the corporate man. That will take probably this afternoon's session. Okay? He does not mean for you to do this as individuals, although you will function in your individual parts. He means to do this as a corporate man a spiritual man who is expressed in the earth in human form. Uh, I'll leave you with this thought and this is where I want to pick up. You will notice that at times Jesus is referred to as Jesus Christ and at times he's referred to as Christ Jesus. It depends on the emphasis that God wishes that you should see, because he's both God and man. He's God in human form. And when his humanity is being referenced against the background of his being a representative of heaven, then he'll be referred to as Jesus Christ, the emphasis being first on Jesus. But when his resurrected form is intended is the intended reference and who he is as seen from heaven is the emphasis then he'll be referred to as christ jesus you are assembled not to the body of jesus that's the man from galilee or the man from uh, from bethlehem and galilee you've been assembled to Christ. You have not come like the Jews did to the mountain in, in, uh, in Arabia that's smoking and burning with fire, but you have come to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, to the Lord Jesus who is the Christ. I wish to speak this afternoon, then, in the final session, on Christ Jesus, also referencing by that the new man, the man in whom heaven and earth will fully empty themselves and be viewed as the new heavens and the new earth in a man. So we'll speak of the corporate Christ, and I hope to unpack the vision of Ezekiel, the four creatures. And uh, the four faces. We'll look at them in heaven and we'll look at them on the earth. All right. Thanks, sir.